Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to this week's episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. And guys, this week I have gone down the musical road. As a lot of you know, I had a career as a professional musician in a previous life, and I have found a kindred spirit to uh, to talk about his career, both in music and in business. This guy is a producer. Uh, he's an author now. He's got a couple of books out, as well as a public speaker. Please welcome the most intelligent drummer I've ever got to speak to, Jeremy Schreifels. Jeremy, welcome. Hey, hey thanks, Sam. I'm what that's a great intro, dude. Well, because nobody expects to uh, to ever talk to an intelligent drummer, you know. Right. It's a little bit of an oxymoron. I usually tell people the drummer just hangs out with musicians. That, that's true. Do you know Do you know how you can tell when a drummer is going to be on your podcast? No. It's because he never knows when to come in. <laughs> All right. Oh. We could just sit here for the entire hour and do drummer jokes. Or um, you could piggyback off of what I told the audience and give us a real quick overview of just who you are and uh, what it is that you do, man. Right. Well, I've been a professional freelance drumming musician uh, for the last 15 years, mm -hmm. for sure. That's kind of been where my heart has been at and what I've been doing across the US, which has been a blast and learning and growing and doing all those things. And through that journey, moved into the music producer role because I actually really like the creative side of music, mm -hmm. um, bringing things together, more importantly, bringing people together to create something, to collaborate, just because the synergy you get working collaboratively is just greater than, than working on your own. And so that producing space led into a songwriting space. Mm -hmm which led into writing my book, my first book, Road to 99, mm -hmm. which was my journey of writing 99 songs with my co-writing partners uh, during 2020 and 2021. So that was kind of the, the COVID thing to do as I chose to write songs, which led to the book. Right, right. It's been amazing. So yeah. what, what was it like starting out? How, how long, were, were you born with, with drumsticks in your hands? Cause like I, I was, I think I came out with a rattle, you know, anything that I could make noise. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the drumming journey started for me, like most people with school band, you know, 10, 11 years old, you get started. They actually started me on saxophone and moved me cause I was bored. <laughs> uh, I took like four years of piano before I started playing saxophone. And so they're just like, we're teaching stuff that you learned four years ago. So go do percussion because then back then you had to do two things. Mm -hmm. You had the drum side of things and then you had the mallet side of things. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, you're bored. So go do this thing. And I just, I fell in love with it. Right. And, and eventually when I got into the high school space, I ditched sports. I used to play basketball, baseball, track, all those kinds of things. I got into high school. I ditched all of them and just went all in on music. <laughs> that sounds like what I did. I think I was uh, I was 12 when I quit the, the school sports and uh, just started picking up sticks more and more and more. There were, then there was no time to do any sports. It was all drumming after that. Yeah, because, I mean, you think about it, in high school you have all these music opportunities, jazz band, 
marching band, all of little, any musical opportunity I inserted myself into was orchestra, choir, theater, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And that led me to going to college on a full ride music performance scholarship, mm -hmm. which was a blessing, uh, even way back then. And two years in, um, I actually, um, ended up with two tears on my wrist, which I still have on my left wrist, one on the top, one on the side mm -hmm. and ended up with surgery, which they didn't repair them they basically what they explained to me in layman's terms was they rounded them out so there wasn't like skin flapping or a tear couldn't become worse ouch yeah and so at that point about two years literally two years into a performance degree thought i was never going to play drums again wow how, how did that work out then i mean there's obviously like a long time of recovery i've had i've had surgeries on tendons and, and all kinds of things break from drumming and yeah, it's it's never nice to take a break from your thing you're passionate about. Did did you think you wouldn't be able to do it again? I did. And wow. so that that sent me down a real dark road, depression, all sorts of um bad things in the college. And I actually I switched my degree and so I actually graduated with a theory comp degree. So the the creative side of that things. Mm -hmm. Um and thought I would never play again and it took about five, six years to kind of come to being okay with that, so to speak. Wow. And then about five years after that, somebody asked me to play drums in my church. Mm -hmm. And I was scared to death. No lie. I was like, no, I can't do it. Cause it was so painful, Sam. Like I couldn't hold this water bottle. I would drop oh, it. Wow. Yeah. It was so, it was like, you can't, it was, it was literally fear. Yeah, yeah. That would, so, I wouldn't know how to get around that. I mean, with my injuries, I could always hold my stick and try to try to figure out a way to play around that shit. You know, I just yeah. I couldn't imagine not being on a grip. And then I played at that church once, and it didn't hurt, hmm. which was interesting. And so I did it again, and again it didn't hurt. And then after I think it was about the third or fourth time I played. I was all in. I was like, I got to figure this out. So I just, I dove into research. How can I learn how to play again? How do I take care of my muscles? How do I take care of my body and my person to make sure that they're forever protected? Because I, I didn't. I, now I have to ask for, for my own volition. What, what did you learn on that, on that research discovery? And the reason I ask is because I'm 42 and I love to play a good rock show. But you said taking care of your body, taking care of your muscles, all that stuff. I'm finding now as an aging drummer, whenever I get done tearing it up, the next couple of days, I feel like I've been hit by a van. How do you get around that? Because like, that's one thing that's stopping me like booking serious shows is just the, the physical hangover. And you know, I'm, I'm in a, about the best shape of my life, and I still right. get this physical hangover from when I'm done playing those level of shows. How do you get around that? So what? At a, through my journey, mm -hmm. I started playing more, and I start to, and I got to where you are talking about. So it's like you play a three-hour show, and like you shouldn't touch sticks for three days <laughs> because yeah. you're just like it's so painful, and it, like this shouldn't be painful. Mm -hmm. And so I found a teacher um, in New York. Um, his name is Daniel Glass. And I worked with him and he broke it all the way down. I went all the way back to stroke 
Like, how do I hold a stick? What's grip? And how do I actually play the instrument? And I worked with him for about three and a half years. So Daniel's teacher was the same guy who changed Neil Peart's plane, mm-hmm. Steve Smith's plane, Dave Weckl's plane. <laughs> His name was Freddie Gruber. He's like this guru of grip and playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know who that guy is. So yeah. Daniel, that was Daniel's teacher. And so I went to Daniel and he passed that information on to me. And so what it really comes down to is using what the body already has available Mm -hmm. in the most efficient way as it pertains to using a stick to strike a surface. I love that. I I tell so many people that drumming is, it's gravity fed. It, it, it works yes. off of it works off gravity. You shouldn't be doing the work. The stick should be doing the work. You know. Yes. So. And so now, like, I can play three three hour shows a weekend, <laughs> and I'm fine. So I'm Zero just like, I, I, I <laughs> none of those the, things. It's it's the finger action. But when you make that finger action, everybody thinks you're being rude. But it, it's it's really these fingers and these muscles that control everything on the stick. You know? and, and and I'm using less than that. I'm it, it's all coming from here. Mm-hmm. It's all this wrist and relaxation. Yeah, and and the stick and rebound. Man, that's why I hate playing with those rods. They, oh, they, I don't play gigs with those rods. Oh, I hate it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's been a couple of people who ask, "Can you play with hot rods?" Nope, nope. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't even bring them. You either get brushes. I'm okay with brushes. That's sensitivity. That's finesse. That's musicianship. Or you get sticks. Because unlike many drummers, I actually play with something called dynamics. <laughs> Man. I don't have I don't have two dynamics off and loud. I mean, or fast and faster. Yeah, exactly. So um coming back to business and drumming. Because um, yeah. otherwise, we're, you and I will get a lot out of discussing the merits of uh, a 2B with a nylon tip or, right. or, or a 5B. Or <laughs> <laughs> but nobody but, else but, is but, going to. No, we'll, we'll probably get lost in the mix. So um, talk to me about after you get done at church and you realize you can play again. And now I'm, I'm thinking from, from timeline-wise, you should be late 20s, early 30s, right? Was early 30s. Yep. Okay. So, how does your career kick back up after that? So, once I got going into that space and really could play, um, I started playing playing live. I started mm-hmm. playing gigs, um, and it started with a small blues band that nobody knows. And you drive 500 miles and play for 50 dollars. Oh man, those are the worst. The best, and but the best. <laughs> and then slowly, after time, you move from one band to another band. Mm-hmm. And then you move from, and then it was my third band that I was in was a country band, mostly classic and nineties country, mm-hmm. which in, in the Midwest is huge. And we did really well. We went from just like a small time kind of middle of like central Minnesota group uh-huh. to a Midwest group. So fully regional. Yeah. Fully. And so it was really a growth and just a testament to business, showing up, doing the work, marketing, so tell treating me some, people right. Tell, yeah. me some, tell me some basic things then for business that musicians don't think of. 
What were some things that you ran into while you were out uh, trying to put these bands together from a marketing and a logistics perspective that maybe some musicians haven't run into yet? I th the first one I always talk about is relationships. You got to make a relationship with those venues mm -hmm. because those are the ones that are promoting you for when you come back. And they're the ones you go to in 18 or 24 months and say, hey, we need more money. We're bringing more people. You're selling more alcohol. We need more money. Right. Which helps you to kind of do some of those promotion sorts of things. And then the second thing I do is talk to the people that are there. Mm -hmm. As musicians, so many times people see this stage and they see it as a barrier. Mm -hmm. They put us on this pedestal. It doesn't matter if we're a, a small time band, a regional band, or a touring act. They see some a musician on a stage and they automatically think, I can't do that. They're way cooler than I am, and they must be just some amazing sort of human being. But that's true. I mean, we are cooler than them and they can't do this. Well, <laughs> you're right. They maybe can't do that exact thing. Uh no, I'm just being <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get along just fine. It takes a lot of work to get on that damn stage, man. It takes a lot of work. And I am better than See you. See all so that gear I? I have to haul yeah, up there? That's a lot of carrying and shit. I practiced. like. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's it. And But also teaching them, like, you're a human being. That's true. Yeah. Because that's how you connect with fans. Like, you just, they need to know you're human and real. And that's how I continue to build that. And just, just be a good person. Mm-hmm treat those people right. And then as you got bigger gigs, more people saw you doing that thing. Mm -hmm. And as I grew in my career as a drummer, I sought out other drummers who were two, three levels above where I am. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of the people for me that I call my mentors and drumming are guys that are on tour. Mm -hmm. They're the ones playing arenas. They're the ones playing these huge festivals as headliners. Yeah. Because they're the ones who have done all the things I've already done. So I go to them and I say, hey, this is what's going on. And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, some... that's the same in any line of business. You, you go and get, exactly. you, you find the guys that are where you want to go and you go ask them the questions, man. Right. I, mean, I think every, I mean, I've got a few original bits and pieces, but I think every flashy drum riff that, that I've got in my, in my repertoire can be traced back somewhere. You know, if you look at John Bonham and Cozy Powell and Roger Taylor enough, you, you're going to find a lot of my stuff hidden in yeah. there, you know? Right, because you were influenced by them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's what you listened to. That's what you played in. Those are probably the bands that you played in, and those are the kind of music they played. And, you know, when you think about that mentorship piece, it's like then people started coming and asking me, well, Jeremy, right. you're playing all the time. How do I get those gigs? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I don't know, show up and do your job. <laughs> I mean, and sometimes well, it, yeah. it, it really has been that simple. Like just show up and do your job, which is to keep time and provide energy. Those are oh, my yeah. two jobs as a drummer. Dude, there, there's nothing like putting out energy into a room that's, that's full. It doesn't matter how big the room is. It's whether the room's full or not. You put out that energy and you feel it coming back off the crowd. That, there's just no feeling like that as uh, right. any any kind of musician that's why i stick with the drums you know so <laughs> sorry go, go ahead on. oh I just was... that <laughs> that impact that i ha that you can have on those people and then oh, yeah. them coming back and asking and that's what kind of led me to this idea of 
the mentorship or the coaching, mm -hmm. just like I am running a business. Being a drummer is, a, you know, those are the things they don't teach you in college when you get a music degree is that you're the accounting department, you're the, um, you're the, you know, collections department, you're the marketing department, you're all the things, but all they teach you is like, you know, how to play Shostakovich and Stravinsky and. Do you want to know what I learned in music school? I learned which spots on campus you could smoke weed in and not get caught. <laughs> I lasted, uh, I lasted six weeks at music school. I was this kid that was ready to go, ready to go, ready to go. And everybody else was hanging out smoking weed. I did not smoke weed in school at all. And uh, I left music school after six weeks. There was, there was a lot of, lot of that. but if I hadn't, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have come out to, uh, to America and, uh, and gone that route. But I, right. uh, I, man, yeah, that's, that's all they taught us in music school was, was where to hide and go smoke pot. And then my, it made the, uh, it made the practice sessions a lot more interesting. You know? Well, yeah, they taught <laughs> us how to hide so that we could be quiet and dark enough while the janitors would lock up all the buildings so that you could stay in the music department longer so you mm. could practice later. Now, dude, real talk, um, in high school, I was friends with the janitor. And I would make sure that, you know, the janitor maybe had some cake every now and again from a school run if I'd been into town or whatever. And I had keys to the practice rooms. And he didn't say shit. If I was in there after school or at lunchtime, I'd got the keys. It was fine. So uh, word to the wise, bring some cake to the janitors because you can... Uh, they're your best friends at a high school. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Like he, I remember his name was Mickey. He used to have a little TV in his little janitor's office, and mm -hmm. uh, you could hang out in there and watch TV. And yeah, you, you, we would. Man, I spent more time cutting classes in high school. If I had put energy into high school instead of energy <laughs> into how to cut class and play drums, that's all I did. I just cut class and played drums, and I, I had fucking keys to the practice rooms. And I hope my mother doesn't hear this because if she does, she's gonna like yell at me. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm 42, and I'm still worried about disappointing my mom. But yeah, I cut class and played drums. That's that's pretty much what I did in school. That's we, a, I mean, I love that. <laughs> did, did you do that? Or no, you, I don't. I don't condone such activity. <laughs> I have teenagers in high school, so cut I don't class, want them guys, to listen cut to class, this. Play drums. <laughs> Oh goodness! Dude, that's all I ever did. So, how does how does a drummer write a book, Jeremy? How did you get into books? Talk us through that a little bit, if you would. Sure. I think the part that got me into the book was the creative piece, right? Mm -hmm. And you know that the songwriting journey for me started intentionally, like COVID. You know, the world was shut down. I went from having what was going to be the highlight year of my career as a drummer from mm -hmm. touring. I had fly dates all over the U.S. Okay. Like it was going to be amazing to like instantly nothing, zero, zilge. Because that was just, I mean, not that that wasn't what the rest of the world was also doing. However, the music industry took a really long time oh. to allow us to come back into that space. Yeah, yeah, the, um, it, it, it was bad. I, I had clients in the music industry and it just, it went dark completely. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we had to pivot. We had to find something different. Mm-hmm. And I dove right into the writing piece. I had a couple of partners that we literally wrote um, every week or every month on Zoom. How do, fact, how do you how do you write a song, man? How do, I, I don't even know how. Do you start with a guitar and go, that sounds pretty? Or do you start with some drums and go, that rocks? Or how, talk me through that. 
so uh, I'll use the example of when I write with my with my friend Nate because he's the one who kind of was the impetus of the book and how the storyline was created. Mm-hmm. Um, we just started. I mean, he's a killer guitar player and um, and singer, and we just get on Zoom and we you know like we have some conversation and we talk about whatever life, and then something will spark. And sometimes it's like you know we cut school and. You know, we cut class and watched TV and played some drums. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, that's a cool idea. Like, could we make a line out of that? Mm-hmm. Cutting class and living high, playing drums and slaying whatever. Like, <laughs> you could you could come up with a lyric. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you based can be on like a situation okay. based on a memory. I n- I never thought about this. Like, because every time I I think about writing a song, I'm like, nah, I can't be doing it with lyrics and shit. I'll just bang the drums a bit more. You know. Yeah. And so, and to me, I was like you, I'm like, I'm a drummer. What can I bring to a, to a writing session? Right. right. And then a drummer friend of mine said, everything, you bring energy, you bring rhythm, you can understand the whole piece. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm like, I allowed myself to hear that I could do it. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause you're right now saying, oh, well maybe I could do it because 45 seconds ago you were like, I'm not in for that. Oh, dude, I'll do it. All I need is four chords and a sad story. It's going to be great. All right. <laughs> but like we, we write about anything like sometimes, and I talk about this, that I kind of outline some of this process stuff as part of that book uh-huh. because I timeline it out. Like, you know, here's the first zero to 30 songs and they sucked. Right. What, well, like what's our... go in, what sucked about him? I mean, did did because uh, John, Jonathan Colton? Of... Have you have you heard of him? He did an album called uh, he did an album called Thing a Week One, where he challenged himself to write and produce and record and finish one song per week until his album had been done because his wife was nagging him uh, that he'd never get this music career going. So he literally shut himself in his basement. And didn't come out until he, until he'd done that. So I was just, you know, how did that how did that work out for you? <laughs> like, well, <clears throat> with Nate, we write every week. Okay. Um, and I would say, let's be realistic, it's probably about forty six weeks a year. Okay, that's since, a lot. That's a lot. Since since April of twenty twenty, we've been doing that. Um, and so, in the beginning, our goal was just to write music. Mm-hmm. that's what was our goal and we wanted to write music that we like we enjoy and we think that people would would bring others joy right whatever that might whatever that looks like um and then we got to a point where like okay we've written some songs now we feel like we have something we can say because we understand like how we work together because it needs to be a musical like a conversation okay yeah we're passing ideas back and forth i'm like ah, i don't really like that lyric or oh can we do this with the melody or I really love that guitar groove. Can we find something that fits on top of that? Mm-hmm. And so we kind of have this play back and forth. And then we finally got to the point where after the first like 15 to 20 songs, we're like, we feel like we have something to say as a collaborative. Ah. Right. Like we're like, okay, yeah. we're two people and we're songwriters and we have something to say. So mm-hmm. then we started writing with a little more intention. We're like, okay, well, what would that look like? Why would we do that? And so our writing got more meticulous and editing on the fly rather than waiting. Mm-hmm. And then, then some of them started to pop. We're like, oh, I could hear like, oh, I could hear this guitar line and 
these keys in here and like we're really into saxophone so like three of our first songs they all have saxophone in them mm-hmm. um just as something that's fun right so right. we started kind of instituting some of those pieces and more of them started what i would consider pop off the page like they resonated with us like sometimes you can write a song and you're just like that's i did the thing i made a check mark <laughs> right. i wrote the song but some of them jumped off the page mm-hmm. and as we kept going down that journey you know now we're whatever it's october we probably have 25 ish songs in for 2022 and i bet almost every third one we're like <laughs> yes <laughs> This is going to be the next one we're going to record. This is going to be the next one we're going to record. That's so crazy, man, because (laughs) whenever we were in the studio, whenever we were working on stuff, and I've been in several bands, it's always the same ratio. You You put 10 or 12 songs together, and you've got like three or four absolute bangers and then there's eight like you're like well they're, they're all right but they don't really like they don't do it but there's three or four that you know are just going to absolutely kill it it's funny yeah. that those ratios are the same man they really are you know and i we took that and kept that in our minds because then we're like we don't we're not touring artists mm-hmm. that's not our goal we want to write record and release music right that we enjoy and why not? So that's what we do. So what's your studio setup like then? Do you do everything in-house yourselves? We do now. Um, for the most part, we hire out some musicians. He used to live in Nashville. He just moved up back to Minnesota mm-hmm. over this past winter. But he lived in Nashville, so I was going down there a lot. Right. Um, and we have a group of musicians down there that we use pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And now even back up here for much of it, for some of the stuff we still use them because I, my studio was built to do remote work. Right, right, right. But I, I was kind of curious as to whether or not you could, is there an avenue for beginning and intermediate musicians to produce high enough quality music from home studios that they can actually publish it and release it themselves? Every day. There's like 20 to 30,000 new songs released every single day. Well, look at that. I didn't know that. Like, it's the, insane. Yeah. So I was at a panel once at NAM, which is, I'm sure you know, is a huge music convention mm-hmm. every year, international, mm-hmm. um, with Stuart Copeland. And he's like, it's so, and this is probably 10 years ago. And he's like, it's so great that every idiot in their home studio with a laptop can produce an album. And then it's so terrible that every idiot <laughs> produce an album <laughs> at home. So how do you be yeah. different? Is really yeah. what he's saying you know billy eilish's first single that she exploded with that was recorded with her and her brother on a laptop in their apartment no kidding so, so no, I, I didn't know that so, i've got a um i got a 16 year old niece and uh videos of her keep popping up on my facebook feed of, of her busking she goes into she's over in uh, in england and she she's just singing and busking i'm like man I wonder if I could get a, a, a roadcaster or, or a laptop over to her or something because, you know, I just, I think that the potential for um, underserved artists to get music out on these platforms now is just, it's, it's incredible. Huge. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> like when, when I went in the studio, it was like a production. Like you, you yes. know, I think my last time in a professional one was in 2006. 
So you can know how much it's changed in, uh, in what, 16, 18 years. Significantly. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that you can get that kind of quality from from the hat. The fact that we're sitting in, in our own offices recording a podcast and it sounds as good as it sounds. I mean, you know. Exactly. And yeah, and so I have the ability here in my studio to fully track drums. I have my drum. You can, If you're on video, you can kind of see my drums back to yeah, the corner. He's, he's got them in the background there, some, some guitars and stuff as well. Yep, and then I have a little corner over here that I can kind of curtain off that works really great for a vocal booth and recording acoustic guitar. And if I need to crank up really loud electric amps, I just run them out into my other room and run a cord into here and turn them up. Wow. So you got and everything just, you need at the house. Yep. Uh, no wonder you're producing 99 songs real quick. <laughs> yeah. And one of my other writing partner, we, re we record and release a song every single month, and we've been doing it. In February, it will be three straight years. Wow. So wh where do you publish your music? Sorry, just out of complete curiosity. Yeah. Yep. Everything I do goes on Spotify. It's all digitally distributed. So it's all going on Spotify and on iTunes, wherever you listen to your favorite music streaming platform. Um, you can find stuff that I've done there. Well, I'm going to subscribe to your Spotify after the show. If you oh, tell well, us how you. to find your channel, I'll put it in the show notes. Sure. Well, it's fairly simple. Just search my name, Jeremy Schreifels, right in Spotify. And um, you should be able to connect with it right there. I have some right. playlists. You you have quite a unique spelling of that, so we will put that in the show notes for everyone. Just yes, click, <laughs> click, click on it. We had the uh, the phonetic pronunciation session before the uh, before the show, so I learned how to say Schreifels. <laughs> and so, he nailed it. Well, thank you, thank you. So, what is coming next for you? Because you are not only a musician, you're a producer and uh, a public speaker as well. So, tell me a little bit about what you got planned for the future. Awesome. That is an amazing question. So the, I keep saying it's new. It's not really new. It's an expansion and a deepening of what I've already been doing for the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. And that's producing in the audio space. I partnered with an amazing gentleman, Danny Galvez, to have a media company where we produce audiobooks mm -hmm. for authors and and help them launch, edit, produce, and distribute podcasts. So those are the two biggest things that we're doing for entrepreneurs, business owners, individuals, depending on you know what, what space level they're at. Mm -hmm. But it's such an amazing opportunity because I can still help people create because we actually go to a studio with them, help them produce in the audiobook, audiobook space, help them produce their book like a vocal session, like right. you would have experienced in 2006, same sort of idea. Um, or coach them through what that might look like for them doing it on their own. Because if you have good equipment at home, you, you do have the capability to do it. I never thought about that. Just, just exactly how much work goes into producing um, an audio book. There, there must be a lot, of, a lot of market for audio books now, given the rise of podcasts and, and streaming services and stuff. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. So the audiobook space just this year, in 2021, sorry, it's 2022. I'm already planning for 23. Uh -huh. uh, so I'm, my years are off. So in 2021, um, the audiobook space was a $1.3 billion market. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's exploding, especially with younger listeners. They don't want to read books. They no, like I, the idea of books. 
Dude, but I'm most about, people I'm about listen to audiobooks. I'm about 73. Yeah, audio, audio. Like I I read every day as part of my, you know, 75 hard and part of my G code stuff, but like 70% of my content is coming over over the headphones. Yeah. Yeah, I'm probably Easily. 60% books, 40% audio, which is always interesting for people to hear because I'm audio's my space, but I'm like but my ears need a break too. <laughs> do you commute though or do you work there? I mostly work here. Yeah. See, I'm in the truck a lot. You see, I, I go from one end of town to the other and back and forth. And I got, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. I'm always in the truck. So for me, like it's, it's great time to just sit there and, uh, and actually learn stuff, you know? Yeah. I always call that drive time university. I miss being on the road mm -hmm. for that fact. Yeah. It looks like your commute's fairly short. <laughs> yeah. It's like 17 stairs and yeah. 20 steps and I'm mm -hmm. good. Yeah, part of me envies you, but part of me doesn't envy you. Like, I enjoy working from home, but I, I also enjoy having an office space. And right now, I get the benefit of the best of both worlds because I've got a studio in my office and a studio in my house. So, <laughs> my, my goal is to have a, a, a studio space that I can go to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so that uh, I can have that just to have that separation. I it, think it's healthy and good. Yeah. I'm blessed to have it here and the level and the quality that I have here, which is I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. but it would i i hear what you're saying too it's like it's it's great to just leave you know everybody yeah. else here leaves they go to school or they go to work and then they get to come home and i'm like i'm out of here it's five o'clock let's go somewhere else <laughs> i've had enough but now i i built several businesses in, in in a coffee shop when i had a home office just because i wanted out the house i wanted to interact with people and and you know i just i could sit there and type and type and type look out the window and not, not see a soul all day you know but, yeah I think it's I, but a lot of the book writing happened at a coffee shops. Yeah, yeah. Just just for a change of scenery, just to reset what's going on in your brain there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, hundred, and you need it. I, I'm. It's essential because I live in this space all the time, and there are no windows. <laughs> what What do you think is the most challenging thing about producing an audio book? Hmm. I think it's getting the narrator, which we always prefer that the authors do the narrating, mm -hmm. is for them to authentically allow their voice to come out versus just dictating something that they're reading that's in front of them on an iPad or a piece of paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be difficult. I never thought about that because it's, it's got just, to sound like they're speaking it to you instead of reading it out loud. Yes. Like the inflection. It's so the small. But yeah, but you can tell it's so impactful. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about that for a second. Like yeah. I don't so know. I think that's why I say like I think of helping authors narrate their books like producing a vocal session mm -hmm. for a song. Like it's gotta come alive. You have to feel emotion. <clears throat> it's got I mean I don't go as far as saying that narrating an audiobook is a performance, but it kind of is. It really is, though. No, you you can go that far because to get the the right inflection, the right cadence, uh, the right delivery of the content, you're not just reading the page once. I would imagine you'd read it at least three or four times, have some familiarity with it before you even spoke it out loud, and therefore it's a, it's a performance, surely. Yes, like, and and then there comes the editing fun, right? 
Because <laughs> you have to go back and edit through all of those so this is opportunities. Like, this is just like business books, though, right? What what happens? And I, I'm asking out of some uh, some personal interest. What happens when you're reading a book that's got characters? Are you supposed to just read about the character, or are you supposed to like as a, as a narrator? Are you supposed to find an accent for that character? How does that work? So in the fiction space, uh -huh. um, <clears throat> we focus mostly on the like you said, kind of the business books or education type driven books where it's one narrator and one voice or one inflection is going to be fine for the book from beginning to end oh, okay. with a fiction you have to have you have to have character development you have to it's almost like you have to make it sound like a screenplay mm -hmm. through the headphones so a lot of folks will um create characters create audio samples of those characters and then like highlight throughout the book like where where are those characters showing up wow. so that takes a lot more a lot more research mm -hmm. and a lot more development probably a lot more practice too right quite a bit <clears throat> yeah Man. narrators that are successful at the fiction reading do really well because they have that skill well i you know i've made no secret that i quite like talking on a microphone and uh, were it not for we're not for other work commitments. I'd surely have some audiobooks recorded by now. It just sounds like something fun to do, right? Right. Well, and I think you would be great at it. <laughs> well, practice, practice, practice. I'll be I'll be good eventually. But That's right. um, no, it, it's something I'd love to do. That's why I got all the questions about it. But where I stumbled down was like, you want to read a book? Well, yeah, but then well, we need an American accent. I'm like, oh, I'm shit out of luck at that. <laughs> you know? Right. So it's just which which american accent do you do and then you start practicing american accents and you think well maybe i maybe i should stuck just stick to reading english books you know right so it so each narrator matters which is why like we have multiple narrators that we have sourced mm -hmm. so if someone came up if someone wanted an english speaking narrator for a business book i'd be like hey sam I would do it. Call me in a second. Because <laughs> I don't have any other English-speaking narrators right now. So you would be the guy I would definitely call. Well, I'd do it. I'd do it. But uh, no, I think I'm going to start with romance novels. I think they probably sell the best with an English accent. So we'll have to figure that there out. There you go. Um, but anyway, moving on. Moving this conversation on away from uh, away from me narrating dirty books. Because that's... <laughs> For sure. <laughs> that's, that's not where I should end up at all. <clears throat> So let's go to books uh, in general and business books and education because I'm a huge believer in continuing education. What's some of the books that you've read recently, Jeremy, that have made an impression on you that you think the, uh, the audience would benefit from picking up? You know, I've been in a different kind of state. I did the 75 hard program last fall. So I was like deep into self-development and really diving into all those things and continued that into this fall. But this summer I really got into like, I want to go deeper, whether that was deeper on me or that was deeper on what are some other ways to think about the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one book that I'm currently reading is called outlaw platoon. And it's just, it's written from, uh, an American, that was in Afghanistan and just it's all real life, real story, real in country kind of stuff. And it's devastating. Oh wow. And eye opening all at the same time. 
it's like I can only read it in small bites and I got to put it down for a minute because it's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I also lost my dad. Well, it'll be seven years in just a couple of weeks. Excuse mm -hmm. me. <clears throat> and so I'm reading a book that says it's, it's okay to not be okay. Uh -huh. Is the name of the book. And it's just about kind of working through grief and what does that look like in your world? And what does it look like today? <clears throat> Cause we do grief terribly. Yeah. 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 So, Maybe. What's the name of that one? It's okay to not be okay. And the author is Megan Devine. I'm going to write that one down. You know, I read a lot of personal development books, um, but there's some sensitive issues that I'm not very well educated on. And, um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I jokingly said, man, I, I've been to three funerals this year and no weddings. I need to, uh, I need some weddings, <laughs> right. before, need some weddings before the end of the year, but you know, maybe, you maybe reading and, and getting some insight into that would, uh, would, would maybe help me a little bit because, you know, you don't, you got a long time without going to any funerals and then all of a sudden they're like buses as three come at once. Like, well, yes. Like, yeah. yeah. And I just got like three weddings in the last five weeks. So like I'm on the opposite end of your spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> I, which I, is okay as, as little as i like going to weddings i never thought i'd be like man i i, I really need a wedding to go to these funerals suck there's got to be a better reason to get together than this and uh i actually uh just the other day i got a wedding invite for the end of end of october so uh things perfect are, things are looking up just fingers crossed there's no funerals between now and then eh? right absolutely so that's it for books all right i've got two more questions for you jeremy and yep. then um Maybe maybe uh maybe after the show I can steal one of your drumming tracks from somewhere and we can play it as an outro uh so that the the people can hear a little bit of what you play. Um but that wasn't one of my questions. All right. <laughs> so like we discussed earlier before the show, this uh the small business surgeon is aimed at guys just a few years behind us in the trajectory of business and of life. And I notice you got a few little gray hairs there and a beard, same as I do. So with that said, what's one piece of advice that you would give to Jeremy if you could talk to him five or maybe 10 years ago? What's the one thing that stuck with you that you'd want to say? I think the two phrases I always come back to when asked that question is just show up mm -hmm. and never give up. Just keep getting up. The consistent and persistent showing up every day. Some most days you probably aren't going to want to. And those are the days you got to keep showing up. And whether it's showing up for my writing partner every single week on a Zoom call, whether I wanted to or not, mm -hmm. whether it was practicing for that gig for the weekend, whether it was writing that a thousand words a day so my editor isn't calling me <laughs> doing those kinds of things, yeah. you know, or whether it's showing up for my coaching clients and being present and ready for them mm -hmm. so that they're getting the best of me so it's 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 that showing up being I, persistent consistent i like that man if you if you keep showing up enough you're guaranteed to keep moving forward yeah and you know if you never give up you're gonna win because everybody else is gonna quit before you do yeah yeah it's it's a guarantee I mean, it's hard work, um, but you're right. You got to keep. Nobody said up. it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's true. So, uh, Jeremy, as we wrap up today, my friend, where can the people that have enjoyed this show, where can they find you on the internet? 
Uh, you can check out roadto99.com is a place to grab the book. And it also has links to all of the other spaces that I'm in. I'm on all of your social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube. I canceled my MySpace account finally. So that's no longer. <laughs> but we're I, good in that I'm, department. I'm holding on to mine. I think MySpace will come back around. I think it's uh, cyclical. So uh, give it about another seven years and I'll be, I'll be sitting in prime position on, on MySpace. Oof. I don't know. No? All I'll right. watch for it. I'll watch for it. Okay. And no OnlyFans as of this time, right? Correct. Okay. We'll, we'll leave that off. All right. So um, hopefully... <laughs> Not currently. Hopefully we'll have uh, a little bit of your music to play you out on, Jeremy. I think we can find awesome. a, su a suitable clip after this. Um, so just hang on after the show and we'll get that dialed in. But guys, um, please thank uh, the producer, author, and public speaker, Jeremy Schreifels, for being on the show. If you have enjoyed this, run over to his socials, give him a follow, grab a copy of his book, Road to 99. I know I'm going to go ahead and read it, and uh, I may learn something. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Thank you. Hey. Thank you. It was a blast. All right. You can do this anytime. <laughs> I would love to. I'd love to have you on again. Maybe maybe trade off some drum licks when nobody's listening. <laughs> Perfect. We can do that. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to happen. All right, guys. Uh, that was Jeremy Schreifels running over. Show him some love on his socials. And you can, as always, tag us. Share the show. We're over on Instagram, at Small Business Surgeon. Same on Facebook. Uh, that's going to do it for today, guys. Um, we have found some of Jeremy's music. So we'll play you out with that. And you'll be good. Stay safe. And uh, I will see you guys on Friday. This has been the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. If you've made it this far, you clearly like it. So go on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps people find the show and spread the good word. Share with friends and follow us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you for your follow-up next week. The Small Business Surgeon was recorded at Texas Media Foundry in historic downtown Bryan, Texas. Check them out at txfoundry.com or on social media at txfoundry. Thanks for tuning in.